Hello and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp and I'm here with our wonderful cast of two gentlemen of Verona take us across the finish line and get to the really difficult scenes at the end and finish this play. So hooray, here we are everyone. It's It's been a while. So where we left at the end of act four, we were with, we had this wonderful scene with Julia and Sylvia. We got a little like, you know, allyship going on for lack of a better a better word some sort of commiseration about proteus and about all of the difficult (laughs) things that encapsulate proteus um and then also before that sylvia had made a plan to escape her high tower with sir eglamore um And so that was where we left act four. So now we move into act five. So whenever you are ready, ladies. The sun begins to gild the Western sky. And now it is about the very hour that Sylvia at Friar Patrick's cell should meet me. She will not fail for lovers break not hours and lest be to come before their time. So much they spur their expedition. See where she comes, lady, a happy evening. Amen, amen. Go on, good Eglamour. Out at the postern by the abbey wall, I fear I am attended by some spies. Fear not. The forest is not three leagues off. If we recover that, we are sure enough. Okay, so. (laughs) Yes, definitely double, double thumbs up. Um, So this is a a bit of a uh, extension now of this relationship between Sylvia and Eglamour, and they're at Friar Patrick's cell. <laughs> who knew they were in Ireland? Um, <laughs> or who knew there was like an Irish friar in <laughs> They're everywhere. In Verona, but yeah, yeah <laughs> or bread. wherever they are. <laughs> Milan, there we go. There was a diaspora. Uh, exactly, the Milan. Irish diaspora. <laughs> Very little talked about uh, historical movement there. Um, but yes, indeed. So, yeah. Any thoughts just about the characters? I, I, I'm struck by the attended by some spies kind of jumped out to me. <laughs> yes, me too. Me too. That also jumped out at me. I hope they don't jump out at me. <laughs> <laughs> Does she just kind of, she's just like, let's just, I, I mean, this scene didn't have to be here, did it? It could have just, no. You could have just seen them running in the background but we're given lines somehow for a reason yeah it 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 kind of does seem to me that like it's important that we know that sylvia is just constantly watched Mm, which is like really creepy (laughs) i don't do do you have any thoughts on that ellen and just the sort of her day-to-day existence just seems like she has so little privacy why does she have so little privacy? Is she just like the only woman around? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, or is she just like, who is she, Sylvia? What is, what is she? she? <laughs> <laughs> that all our swains commend her. Um, I mean, I mean yeah. I, let's listen. Okay. Every woman here knows like you walk, you're, you know, you know how to look over your shoulder all the time anyway. I think we all feel like we're being watched all the time, especially when it's late at night and you're alone and you're going to your, your wherever. So that's, that's immediately relatable. 
it must be such a sense of relief to finally see the person you're supposed to meet on the street um, to guide you to your to your, your next place. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, no, no, no thoughts really more than that. What what can you tell me about? Do you have any? Do you have any thoughts about? I get the feeling we've got another case of the missing mothers, right? Which is always a big thing in Shakespeare. Where are all these mothers? Um, and I get the feeling that maybe one of the reasons that she's watched and she has so little privacy is this idea that she's the heir of the Duke. Um, and perhaps that feeds into, he's clearly very, very, very protective of her. Um, but I also think if we get into some of the themes of the play that there, there is a resonance with the book of the courtier on this idea that for courtiers, their behavior is constantly watched. Every tiny gesture they make is analyzed by people um, whom they speak to in what order they speak to them. Like there is a whole code and there's, it's like a codified series of manners, but also just a codified behavior. And people read a lot into alliances and different you know, like who's speaking to whom? Do they seem to have a different relationship? And and I I just get the sense that she's probably lived that way her whole life. And that it's also very remarkable that she was able to have these moments with Valentine when he was at the court. But that's really all that kind of... Yeah. 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 Jane, go ahead. I was thinking about the idea that perhaps she's never really been outside the walls of her home and her typical, you know, sort of day to day. And she's, mm -hmm. you know, she's run off, like she's doing something that is outside the norm, that's outside acceptable rules of behavior. And she's probably a little paranoid about it, right? Like this is not a daily occurrence, most likely for her to like run off to the forest to go meet up with a, with a guy. Um, you know, I mean, and, and she enlisted Eglamore to meet her and accompany her. And, um, and I imagine that she's, you know, that's, that's sort of a stress. It's exciting, but also stressful and anxiety inducing. Yeah. And the danger for unmarried women traveling is definitely not something to be underestimated that they had to be incredibly vigilant and sort of extra paranoid about who they were traveling with and <laughs> what their backup plan was and how safe were they going to be. And as we see, you know, both Valentine and Sylvia are, and I guess Proteus and Julia are all sort of encountered by this band of outlaws that we know are just like merry Robin Hood fellows kind of feeling. Um, I finally watched the Errol Flynn adventures of Robin Hood. So th now that's just like, all I've got in my head when I'm thinking about these outlaws, um, which is so fun. What a delightful movie. Um, but yeah, it does, it does seem to me that it, it's important that we feel pursued. I, 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 was, I guess. Uh, I thought it was really funny actually, now that I'm rereading it, she goes, amen, amen, because they're at St. Patrick's cell. Is, is there, is the image there that she's actually just kind of running through and like quickly, like yeah. honoring space and like, okay, 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 yeah, on, okay, okay, here we go. Is that kind I, of the Love that. Yes, please. Let's let's have that be the idea. I also love that almost all the scenes that take place in like religious 
spaces in Shakespeare are super fast. Like I'm yeah. just thinking about Romeo and Juliet. Like they're like, oh yes, yes, yes. Okay, marriage, marriage. Okay, one scene, one page scene. Let's go. <laughs> Off yeah, we go. We can only that. hold this space for so long. Yeah. <laughs> Got it. Uh, wonderful. Okay, so shall we move on to um, five two? Sir Proteus, what says Sylvia to my suit? Oh, sir, I find her milder than she was, and yet she takes exceptions at your person. What, that my leg is too long? No, that it is too little. I'll wear a boot to make it somewhat rounder. But love will not be spurred to what it loathes. What says she to my face? She says it is a fair one. Nay, then the wanton lies. My face is black. But pearls are fair, and the old saying is, black men are pearls in beauteous ladies' eyes. Tis true, such pearls as put out ladies' eyes, for I had rather wink than look on them. How likes she my discourse? Ill when you talk of war. But well when I discourse of love and peace. But better indeed when you hold your peace. What says she to my valor? Oh, sir, she makes no doubt of that. She needs not when she knows it's cowardice. What says she to my birth? That you are well derived. And true, from a gentleman to a fool. Considers she my possessions? Oh, aye, and pities them. Wherefore? That such an ass should owe them. That they are out by lease. Here comes the duke. How now, Sir Proteus? How now, Turio? Which of you saw Eglamour of late? Not I. Nor I. Saw you my daughter? Neither. Why then, she's fled unto that peasant Valentine, and Eglamour is in her company. Tis true, for Friar Lawrence met them both, and he and Penance wandered through the forest. He knew him well and guessed that it was she, but being masked, he was not sure of it. Besides, she did contend confession at Patrick's cell this even, and there she was not. These likelihoods confirm her flight from hence. Therefore, I pray you, stand not to discourse, but mount you presently and meet me upon the rising of the mountain foot that leads toward Mantua, whither they are fled. Dispatch, sweet gentlemen, and follow me. Why, this it is to be a peevish girl that flies her fortune when it follows her. I'll after, more to be revenged on Eglamour than for the love of reckless Sylvia. And I will follow, more for Sylvia's love than hate of Eglamour that goes with her. And I will follow, more to cross that love than hate for Sylvia that is gone for love. <laughs> I don't know why that last bit really reminds me of uh, As You Like It. An eye for Phoebe, an eye for Rosalind, an eye for a woman. You know, like there's just this really funny, like everyone, everyone has to declare something to the audience. I, I would hope that that would be a really funny moment because we need funny moments in this act because, oh my God, 5-4 is just going to kill us. Thoughts? <laughs> There's sort of two sections of the scene. Maybe it would be helpful if we if we broke it down um, into a pre-Duke entering and this sort of Julia the sassy sidekick yeah. going on. 
Yeah, I just um, I just like this idea of like uh, Torio and Proteus talking to each other, and Julia just like muttering to herself off to the side. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that this is kind of what is, she's doing. Yeah, it's very Commedia dell'arte, like we've noted before. Mm. Well, yeah, and nobody notices her. Yeah. Nobody. I mean, she's there. The Duke doesn't even acknowledge that there's like a third person standing there when he walks in, and she's like, "Well, fine. Like, I'm just gonna yeah. speak yeah. my mind, and nobody, nobody will listen." Yeah. Yeah. But I actually could see an interesting possibility where she's speaking these asides to Proteus. Like, I don't know how exactly that would work with Cheerio, but just as a way, I'm just trying to find ways <laughs> that we can build some sort of relationship between Proteus and Julia in this disguise so that it's like, oh, they still have a connection that maybe those those moments are are for his benefit because they both are on the same page at knowing that like Sylvie's never going to be with this guy. Yeah. I mean, everyone knows honestly that that makes the most sense, I think, because otherwise like, yeah, the end of the play, well, the whole end of the play makes you just shrug your shoulders like anyways, but (laughs) um, also just in terms of like the logistics of this, it's, I think it would be, it would, like you said, move the story forward more if, Julia was still active in the conversation <laughs> than just yeah. her yeah. muttering. Yeah. <laughs> She's also like throughout the play been very, she does not shrink away from moments of conflict at all. So to me, like if this was completely to herself, I feel like this would be a huge change of character from what we've seen because she will sometimes say the truth and then be like, oh, just kidding. You know what? Because she's actually speaking a little bit too close. Well, yeah. And I mean, I think her big flaw in this whole play is that she still wants to be with Proteus. (laughs) It just feels, you know, so I think like she'll want to move forward even though she's mad at him and even though she sees what's happening with him and and pursuing Sylvia I think she still wants to like impress him and be on his good side and make him smile you know yeah I really just get such Sir Andrew energy from Cheerio too (laughs) yes yeah yeah I can I can totally see the comparison what does she see? Um, yes. Anyway, Sam, go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, it's really funny that you said that because when I initially heard the scene just now, I had the same initial impression as Sam with uh, Julia up farther with the audience and this being like a private thing. But when you said that the connection building together, um, I think you're absolutely right that it fits the end of the play, but I also think it says something about Proteus as a character and his relationships with people, that they're doing the same thing that we see Valentine and him doing, which is sort of this bonding through wordplay and this bonding through making fun kind of of the people around them. And there is something that I, once you put that suggestion out there, really like that as almost like a reconnection between those two characters, but almost also like almost like a little bit of a softening of Proteus, like Proteus returning to the Proteus a little bit that like, at least in the way that this word banter would go in, if you made the directing choice to have Proteus actually find what Julia is doing here to be very funny, you know, Mm -hmm. and having like a hard time getting through it because otherwise I really did not know what this was doing in act five. This is like very much 
uh, uh, an act one, act two scene for me. And it sits out kind of like this weird sore thumb of like, we're going to mock Turio for a little bit right now with some like little clever jives right before we get to this really complicated ending of a play. So I really like that director's suggestion of bringing them together. Um, mm. I thought that was a really cool idea. Mitch, did you have something it, as well? Well, just, yeah. just that that follows, I think. Um, at the end of act four, I think I noted there's this this weird moment where Proteus just like goes out of his way when he doesn't have to, to talk about how great Sebastian is, how, how awesome he thinks Sebastian is. And so I do think Shakespeare uh, in that moment is attempting to do a reconnection um, of these characters that show that Proteus is genuinely fond of this human. Um, I think that probably ends up making, we'll talk about it when we get there. The, the end of the play, like almost even more problematic because, I, but you know, because we're following a comedic structure, but I do think that that's what's happening. And I like this idea of the asides being a connection between the two of them. I think it fits the act four thing that just happened. I also just, just want to point out that I, th- I think that asides are something that's left over from whatever sort of modern edition I was using and that I didn't take them out. But just to say that asides are not usually written into the folio and th- those are usually editor's choice. So there is, um, you know, there, what I like is, is, and I'm sorry, I left them in, but just presenting the script without asides and then people really making, having this sort of power to make decisions about who are you actually speaking this to and who does hear you and how do they feel about it? Um, I find to be just more fun. Um, yeah. Uh, so we have this sort of the joke. I, I love that Julie's like, Oh, the Duke's here. Yeah. <laughs> like, Okay. <laughs> I I realize in Shakespeare that because there's usually such big casts, I've just been noticing how frequently Shakespeare will give someone the line, look, here comes so-and-so, because it's like, it's not really for the character. It's like for the audience to be like, oh, that's that dude's name. Right. Got it. And I'm just noticing more and more, I guess, as I get older and uh, have a little bit less of a romantic idea of Shakespeare it's still pretty romantic but still like there there are so many sort of <laughs> skeletal pieces that are there that are to help establish stagecraft that aren't about aesthetics or poetics or anything they're just a, they're just somebody who's been in the theater for a really long time um not obviously when this was written but having this sort of insight of like right the last time we saw the duke was in act three so we need to re-establish <laughs> this is the duke right so there's just like little little bits like that that i just i'm just like ah theater nerd yes all right um so then the, the duke comes in and larry tell me about this this is such a fast turnaround you just go, hmm, has anyone seen Eglamour to, aha, this means she's fled. Um, it <laughs> seems to me to be like something missing. Um, yeah. I don't know. What it's were your like, thoughts I, on this? I think you can only go on it as if you've got a premonition of something. Mm. You know, where, where's Eglamour? It's, yeah. it's all fucked up. You know? Yeah. And, um, and like Torio shouldn't know. Torio, of course you don't know. But which one of you saw Eglamour? <laughs> like, I don't know anything. <laughs> yes. 
because he he, he says to Proteus first. Oh yeah, Turio, you you yeah. can't seem to get my daughter. You know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which one of you? And he's probably just asking Proteus. Mm. But, uh, mm. <laughs> yeah, I think. Why then? She's fled. It's like, oh, that's what it is. So. It's almost like the last straw. He's kind of figured it out. I think that's the only way to go with it. Then you won't get that chunk in between. Like, hey, where's my daughter? Oh, she's flat. You know, yeah. that's. Yeah. I think that's too convenient. Uh, I don't even yeah. know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I like that, that, that you have this premonition that you're coming in. You're coming from somewhere going, I just spoke to Friar Lawrence, who like. All right. Yeah. All and, right, Verona. And, and I, I saw oh, Romeo. I by the, Romeo was in the other room. And um, he was performing was some illegal about this marriage. Ju some other uh, Julia Juliet. That was her name. It was it was, it was something messy. I I think it was Julieta. Julieta. Yes. I don't know what was going on in there. And just, he was like, making these for... weird potions. I was and, just like. like... Yeah. Anyway, uh, Mitch, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah no, I was just going to say, I mean, the Duke does, I think that's what happened, right? Friar Lawrence sees, like, we, we get the information, I think, about what happened in the interim. Friar Lawrence sees Eglamore and Sylvia and is like, oh, that's Eglamore. And I think that looks like Sylvia. And then she doesn't show up for confession. And so he clearly has gone to the Duke and been like, your daughter, I think, is out there with Eglamore. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I don't know if the Duke has come to ask these two specifically or if he just happens upon them while he's looking yeah for her um but oh, i guess that's Proteus... an interesting choice to make either way yeah yeah because Proteus, the three of them are sort of i think at this point sort of in cahoots right the duke and cheerio and proteus are like or they think they're in cahoots to try to um you know pair her up with cheerio I think so maybe he does go to his co-conspirators and is like um what's going on guys <laughs> the, the the definitely the three musketeers um uh yeah it is and cheerio is is so funny his exit line just really made me laugh of just like <laughs> yes it's just like he, he just he seems to just be a he seems to like be going out of his way to be as pompous as possible like I don't like I'll I'll go after this girl, but not not because I love her. I'm going after her because I want to get revenge on the person who took her away. Yeah. Well, and there's I mean, it's really funny that the Duke clearly knows his daughter better than Cheerio, right? Because he's yes. like, I know what's happened. She's gone to go find Valentine, which is at the top of his speech, and then you're leaving, and you seem to think that Eglamore, like is running off with her and it's like no <laughs> there, there is clearly like a, a dissonance here between, yeah. between information and, and processing um yeah it's uh, just and there's kind of just the kind of blatant self-absorption mostly mm -hmm. i think it's just like uh she's she's going she's giving up a catch like me <laughs> I'm just, I'm so glad, Miles, that you're playing this part because I get like a little bit of elbow in there too, which just is so delightful to me because Miles, everyone was just like the funniest elbow of all time when we did measure a couple, however many years ago that was, two years ago. Um, it was delightful. Um, okay, so they're off. And so everyone's going to the woods. So this is like, 
most of the other comedies, right? Where we, we have a whole group of people going to the forest, right? We get this in As You Like It. We get this in Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, the retreat to nature. We get this to a certain extent in Winter's Tale. Like Bohemia is sort of going from urban to rural. Uh, there's a movement there. The, the sort of, or more pastoral, right? Um, and there was, there was something that I always struggled with because I, I never think of the woods as being pastoral. I'm like, they're the, it's a forest. Like pastoral is like farmland. But for in Shakespeare's time, they were one in the same. Um, so I think that that's also important, right? They're going, they're going to the forest. They're entering the worlds of the pastoral comedy here, um, which is a theme that, as, as we know, Shakespeare is going to revisit over and over again. Um, so let's go in and we'll just get into another very fast scene, right? So far, all the scenes in Act 5 have been very at a clip. Um, so let's move on to 5-3 whenever you are ready. Come, come, be patient. We must bring you to our captain. A thousand more mischances than this one have learned me how to brook this patiently. Come, bring her away. Where's the gentleman that was with her? Being nimble-footed, he hath outrun us. But Moises and Valerius follow him. Go thou with her to the west end of the wood. There is our captain. We'll follow him that's fled. The thicket is beset. He cannot scape. I must bring you to our captain's cave. Fear not. He bears an honorable mind and will not use a woman lawlessly. Oh, Valentine, this I endure for thee. Okay. <laughs> We are reunited with our outlaws. Hooray, hooray. Um, <laughs> Huzzah. <laughs> Sign hurrah. Um, poor Sylvia. Yeah. She just cannot catch a break here in this play. Yeah. It's like she's in like a Punch and Judy play. Hmm. Yeah. Like uh, just kind of uh, com it's almost comical. And it's almost funny how poorly she's treated. Uh, <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. right <laughs> it's almost as if every noble man in this show is just a complete and utter jerk yeah <laughs> I, I like wonder why everybody here that's of 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 high blood is is just such a wanker <laughs> what, what happened what happened to ermagerd <laughs> right right i was i'm nimble-footed <laughs> what happened to Nimble Footed? He's Ermagerd. I mean, seriously though, he was like, I will protect you. And like, first oh. sign of danger, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. Goodbye. Yeah. Good luck running in that dress, lady. <laughs> like, I also love that Sylvia's like, I love that Sylvia at the same time is sort of bored of the outlaws. She's like, I've been this is nothing. She's like, you don't even know. <laughs> you don't even know. Fine. Just let's go typical. see your captain. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, I give up. <laughs> There's like a really funny version of this play, which is just sort of like that, right? Where like Sylvia is just like really upset to be in this play and is just like, can't believe that she has to deal with all of these other characters that are running around. <laughs> but like for real, like, Every single, every single male of noble birth in this play is the opposite of what they originally say that they are. Proteus says that he's this constant lover. He absolutely isn't. 
Valentine is like, I don't give two shits about women. I'm going to go like explore <laughs> the world. What does he do? He immediately falls like in love. You can go down with all of these. The constant hero who's taking her away immediately flees at the first sign of combat. Literally a noble, the only dudes in this play who actually are the things that they say about themselves coming out of their mouths are all the servants. Yeah, it's very and true. The women. And then and the women. And the yeah. women. Even when I Julia's dressed up as a man. Yes. Truly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I love the idea of someone whose name is Proteus being constant, right? Because it was like, yeah. he was kind of damned with his Yeah, it's name. a pretty pretty good clue at the start of the play. No, bro, big clue. It's not going to happen. Yeah, it's not going to be constant. Ariana, does Brooke have more than one meaning here or is it just a vibe? Brooke, um, Brooke meaning injure. Yeah, there's not, that's Yeah, the- I don't think so. That, that what I, what I have is, uh, yeah i was just curious what her word choice there was i I mean that's that's how it reads i was just curious if um there's any other approach to that line is there also a meaning that's like sort of get over more than endure but actually sort of like get over something like Mm -hmm. i I think she thinks she's gonna come out the other side something right (laughs) i like that yeah that there is that maybe there is she has learned the virtue of of patience, right? She planned um, her escape. She's not going to let a couple of outlaws who m- may perhaps kill her, <laughs> you know, like get in her get in her way. Um, this is a temporary setback. There is something a little bit zen about about her in this scene. I I, I find. Um, yeah. I, yeah. Also, what do you think happened happened off stage? Like, what do you imagine was the kind of pantomime of this is of this like chase that happened with the outlaws? Were the outlaws the spies that she thought were following her? Was that different? Ooh. I I feel like the spy was like Friar Lawrence or something. <laughs> but I but it's entirely possible it was the outlaws. But I I feel like something that happened the, the first time that we met the outlaws. Right. Um, something similar happens like, ha stand and deliver. And Eglamore was just like, peace, I'm yeah. out. And then yeah. Sylvia's like, oh, come on. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then she was she was captured by them. Um, yeah. But we don't learn a lot of. What's interesting is Valentine will start the next scene using that same verb, Brooke, right? In, in his first speech. I better mm-hmm. Brooke which is interesting. They've got a shared vocabulary. How sweet. But he's, uh, but he's using, he's punning it. He is making up. Yeah. Pun. Yeah. Um, but I also, this is just a tiny thing, but third outlaw, my dear, um, there is, it's like weird that we hear the names of these other outlaws that we never meet, but yet the three that we do meet don't have names. It's like, what's going on there? Do you have any no. thoughts on that? Any of our outlaws? But Moises and Valerius are the cool ones. On the, <laughs> yeah. They deserve names. They're the um, alphas? Okay, I got you. Yeah. I, I got the, uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. 
Oh no, I I like a, a Valerius the first one is like a famous patrician family of Rome. So I think that the joke here is is that you're getting two very high status men's names, mm. which again, like the all of these. Remember, because all of these, again, with the theme of nobody being who they actually say that they are, all of the bandits here are noblemen who have been run out of town. Yeah, so I yeah. think that the joke yeah. of the two names is that you're giving like, it's Chauncey, Chauncey and like, <laughs> I can't think of another really froofy name off the top of my head, but it's like- Fergus Taylor Ferguson. Yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, uh, Gawain, Rodney, yes. Rupert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that makes that makes sense. But poor, I, I just, yeah, I, I just feel so badly for Sylvia. I just really, it's yeah. like, nothing goes right for her. She's really I, trying her best. She's really yeah. hurtling forward. Hmm. And uh, keeps hitting, uh, hitting a wall that she doesn't, uh, you know, deserve. <laughs> Absolutely. I, I, I feel what? like her Valentine. <laughs> yeah you know, lady, like ladies think about who we're doing all this for Ugh, Valentine. <laughs> this i endure for thee i'm yeah, starting Valentine to time has not done the shit he's gonna do there's probably like a spin she could put on that line this i endure for thee like <laughs> are you are you worth it are we him him oh my done. gosh Valentine's not done his shitty thing yet. That oh. I will say that. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> I think it's really funny that their their initial that the outlaws' initial reaction when they find her is like, ah, let's bring her to the captain. Like it's like she's some kind of offering. Like yeah. let's let's get the lady to the where he'll be very impressed. Yeah. Like, he just <laughs> made him captain, right? So I like, mean, I think it's go. yeah. I think sorry. it's. I guess it, I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm. Go ahead. Uh, and I guess I th it's more like, uh, I guess like St. Valentine's kind of instituted some more uh, more rules since he became captain. And uh, I mean, they're like trying to be the honorable bandits anyway. So they have like a, uh, they have this woman they've captured now and like, uh, uh, so... So what do we what do we do with her? Yeah. Uh, I mean, we we can't we can't do the things bandits would normally do because that's not what we want to be. Uh, I I say we just we just pass this on to the captain and ask him what we should do. He'll know I, what to do. Yeah, he'll know. They were not they were not supposed this. The thing that they're doing runs counter to exactly the instructions yes. that he has given them in that's the last right. scene, which is yes. do not harass silly women. And yeah. yet. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. she wasn't, she wasn't, well, her protector ran away, but it was like, she was protected. So yeah. Yeah. I, I like this theme that nobody is what they, none of the men are who they say they are. Are the outlaws they, yeah. even good at their job or, or yeah. are they, has she just let herself be, she's just like, it's easier if I just let them do their mm. thing. <laughs> And then I'll no, be. They're definitely not good at their jobs. No, no, <laughs> no absolutely not. Well, that that tracks with how Valentine deals with them too, right? He like he outsmarts them a little bit rather than trying absolutely to oppose not. them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think maybe Sylvia kind of checks into that. She's like, okay, sure, take me to your. All right, take me. Take to me your to your leader. leader. Yeah, it almost yeah. feels like if she, if she did the like damsel in distress thing that like that would play into what they're trying to do right like 
if she put up a fight and yelled and shrieked and everything that they would just become more the outlaw character i think i cannot imagine sylvia putting up a fight and like that and like being i cannot imagine her being a damsel in distress that too yeah which i think is really cool at this point in the play to feel like that sure of a character that she would not absolutely react in that way it's kind of cool yeah I'm I'm working on the script for Taming of the Shrew and it's it's just really interesting because I feel like there there is a parallel for sure with uh Bianca in Taming of the Shrew and sort of like oh the maiden but but Sylvia's just got so much more of a backbone than Bianca does yeah. and she's just such a more I don't know just independent free thinking character um than a lot of the sort of you know the ingenue yeah well and the sort of the sort of split of the the shrew or the virgin on a pedestal is that does not track with the two women in this in this play um at all um they're much more complicated than that which is delightful um shall we get into this gross last scene and (laughs) try and just I, i yeah let's let's see what our thoughts are let's go into it see how we're feeling about it um whenever you are ready how use doth breed a habit in a man this shadowy desert unfrequented wood i better brook than flourishing people towns here can i sit alone unseen of any and to the nightingale's complaining notes, tune my distresses and record my woes. O oh, thou that dost inhabit in my breast, leave not the mansion so long tenantless, lest growing ruinous the building fall and leave no memory of what it was. Repair me with thy presence, Sylvia. Thou gentle nymph, cherish thy forlorn swain. What hollowing and what stir is this today? That these are my mates that make their wills their law. Have some unhappy passenger in chase. They love me well, yet I have much to do to keep them from uncivil outrages. Uh, Withdraw thee, Valentine. Who's this comes here? Madam, this service I have done for you, though you respect not aught your servant doth to hazard life and rescue you from him that would have forced your honor and your love. Vouchsafe me for my meed but one fair look, a smaller boon than this I cannot beg, and less than this I am sure you cannot give. How like a dream is this? I see and hear. Love, lend me patience to forbear a while. Oh, miserable, unhappy that I am. Unhappy were you, madam, ere I came. But by my coming, I have made you happy. By thou approach, thou makest me most unhappy. And me, when he approacheth to your presence. Had I been seized by a hungry lion, I would have been breakfast to the beast rather than have false Proteus rescue me. Oh, heaven be judge how I love Valentine, whose life's as tender to me as my soul, and full as much, for more there cannot be. I do detest false perjured proteus therefore be gone solicit me no more what dangerous action stood it next to death would i not undergo for one calm look oh tis the curse in love and still approved when women cannot love where they're beloved when proteus cannot love where he's beloved read or julia's heart 
thy first best love, for whose dear sake thou didst then rend thy faith into a thousand oaths, and all those oaths descended into perjury to love me, thou hast no faith left now, unless thou'st two, and that's far worse than none. Better have none than plural faith, which is too much by one, thou counterfeit to thy true friend. In love, who respects friend? All men but Proteus. Nay, if the gentle spirit of moving words can no way change you to a milder form, I'll woo you like a soldier, at arm's end, and love you against the nature of love. Force ye. Ugh, heaven. I'll force thee yield to my desire. Ruffian! Let go that rude, uncivil touch, thou friend of an ill fashion. Valentine? Thou common friend that's without faith or love, for such is a friend now. Treacherous man, thou hast beguiled my hopes. Not but mine eye could have persuaded me. Now I dare not say I have one friend alive. Thou wouldst disprove me. Who should be trusted when one's right hand is perjured to the bosom? Proteus, I am sorry I must never trust thee more, but count the world a stranger for thy sake. The private wound is deepest. Oh, time most accursed, amongst all foes that a friend should be the worst. My shame and guilt confounds me. Forgive me, Valentine. If hearty sorrow be a sufficient ransom for offense, I tender it here. I do as truly suffer as e'er I did commit. Then I am paid. And once again, I do receive the honest. Who by repentance is not satisfied is nor of heaven nor earth, for these are pleased. By penitence, the eternal's wrath appeased. And that my love may appear plain and free, all that was mine in Sylvia, I give thee. Oh, me unhappy. Look to the boy. Why, boy? Why, why wag? How now? What's the matter? Look up. Speak. Oh, good sir. My master's charged me to deliver a ring to Madam Sylvia, which out of my neglect was never done. Where is that ring? Boy. Here it is. This is it. How? Let me see. Why, this is the ring I gave to Julia. Oh, oh, cry. You mercy, sir. I have mistook. This is the ring you sent to Sylvia. But how camest thou by this ring? At my depart, I gave this unto Julia. And Julia herself did give it me. And Julia herself hath brought it hither. How? Julia. Behold her that gave aim to all thy oaths and entertained them deeply in her heart. How oft hast thou with perjury cleft the root? O Proteus, let this habit much thee blush. Be thou ashamed that I have took upon me such an immodest raiment, if shame live in disguise of love? Is it the lesser blot modesty finds women to change their shapes than men their minds? Than men their minds. Tis true. O heaven, were man but constant, he were perfect. That one error fills him with faults, makes him run through all the sins. Inconstancy falls off ere it begins. What is in Sylvia's face, but I may spy more fresh in Julia's with a constant eye? Come, come, a hand from either. 
Let me be blessed to make this happy close. Toward pity two such friends should be long foes. Bear witness, heaven. I have my wish forever. And I mine. Can we just pause here and <laughs> unpack what we just witnessed? Because Oof. it is really tricksy. Yes, Sam. Mm-mm-mm-mm. It's I just it just makes me so mad for just like so many different reasons. Honestly, I think the most of which truly is the fact that Proteus apologizes to Valentine, but not to Sylvia. Sylvia. It's like, hey, Sylvia, I know I just tried to rape you, but oh, Valentine, I'm really sorry that I just did that. And then Valentine's like, oh, yeah, you're still an honest dude. Who gives a shit about this broad? Go ahead. You can have her. Like, it's wild. It's wild to me. So I'm going to. Yeah. It makes me very angry. This scene. That is definitely an irreconcilable thing about this moment because I think you can interpret what Valentine says in a number of different ways like that not I I don't think he's saying here have Sylvia I think he's saying I'm investing you with the love that I invested in Sylvia and if you mess this up essentially you 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 break all of us you break I see break us all however um, there is absolutely the, the next thing he says to Sylvia is what is in Sylvia's face, but I may spy more fresh in Julia's with a constant eye, which to me is like, oh, bro. Oh boy. Um, yeah. Are you, are you, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I'm interested in hearing more. Uh, of the argument as to why you think Valentine is not offering Sylvia up. Like mm-hmm. I, I sort of think structurally we've always been headed here. Like, mm-hmm. like I, I, I sort of feel like he is offering Sylvia up. Um, but yeah. Can you say more about that first? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, so there's, there's, there's two things that I'm thinking about going on. First of all, the sign of a, gentleman and a true friend would be someone who would sacrifice his own love for his friend's happiness right so that in this moment he valentine is actually doing what would be considered the height of a courtier by offering with this understanding that Sylvia and Julia would also have that this is the most gentlemanly thing that he could possibly be doing. And that they all recognize that this is a huge moment. However, (laughs) I think there's also a sense in which the women kind of fade away in this moment and that this is not actually about them. It becomes about Valentine and Proteus. That's exactly right. And I think the operative word too for Valentine is he says all that was mine and Sylvia, I give thee instead of all that is mine. I think he's yeah. um, to, to Sylvia anyway, for the, for my, for her, this Sylvia, um, I was just gonna, you know, she doesn't say anything. So I think she's kind of thinking, to, you know, um, I, I also agree, agree with you, Ariana. I don't feel like he's physically giving Sylvia away, but I do think that he's saying, Oh my God, you're so much more important to me than Sylvia. That's the value statement that I think he's making. And I think uh, that's pretty shocking right away. What do we think Julia's response to that afterwards is then? 
of the the faint the faint yeah if it's not if it's not the literal giving sylvia to proteus i don't i sort of think these two things are mutually exclusive right like actually Mm -hmm. what i'm hearing you say ariana um is uh, is that he's maybe he doesn't accept expect proteus to then get married to sylvia but he is saying you could if you wanted to like i'm gonna make this sacrifice for you right yeah i think i think that there is there i think it's really complicated right but i i think the only sort of conclusion that i can make is that this is not about the women anymore this whole agreed and that is the only thing that i feel like i'm completely certain about um yeah and that's what's so problematic, I think, right? Like, like, yeah, th- it's that it's almost worse. <laughs> yeah, like, it, well, we've been on this path the whole time, I think, where like they, it's the story of these two men and like caring about each other and betraying each other, um, and it's Valentine's appearance that changes Proteus, right? And Valentine calling him false that changes Proteus, and it's Proteus's apology that that resolves it for valentine um yeah yeah i mean it's been very i think it's been very clear from the start it, the the women do not matter to these it, the really like truly yeah. though it, it, but i think that's that's what this speaks to because it is the women fading away but the women were never really there except as figures you know to them am i yeah opinion. yeah um uh miles and then sam and then colin and izzy uh, I, uh, I, well, I was, uh, looking up uh, information about the play. I found an excerpt from, uh, an essay written by, uh, William Car- C. Carroll in the, the 24, sorry, the 2004 edition of the, uh, Arden Shakespeare. And uh, his analysis of the, uh, scene is that, uh, Valentine is giving Sylvia to Proteus, but, uh, but that, but that, that also kind of makes sense in terms of like the notions of social relationships, which were, uh, which were in the mainstream at the time, in which like a male friendship was held to be like higher than uh, love between uh, men and women, uh, because that was uh, because the latter was held to be like based kind of on physical attraction and lust, whereas like. Uh, and a friendship could be expressed on like a more a higher and more a pure plane. So it's kind of meant as like just an expression of uh, it is like, you know, giving something of value, kind of an expression of friendship between two men. Which and uh, that in the in many ways that would have made sense during that time period. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Sam, I'm going to throw out a curveball here um because i have to say that in like finally getting a chance to read this scene the valentine speech at the very top of this act is just really byzantine to get through like i I had a really i struggled you all heard me struggle with it it's like really but he ends it with this whole like oh if only sylvia would come back and then there's a real big disconnect as reading the the valentine part here because he actually doesn't really seem to care. The second that he lays eyes on Proteus, everything that he says becomes about Proteus. And it's a really fucking hard turn as as the person who is reading this 
to go from this actually really fire speech about friend, like the, the, the speech that starts thou common friend that's without faith or love is actually like pretty burn. Like there's some really good burns that he gets throughout that. And, and you can feel the anger in it as you are reading it. And then to go from that to having a split line apology, it, it really feels like whiplash. Like it, it, it really feels like whiplash. Um, and, and, and the, the, the whole thing here about just like what really seems to have been bugging Valentine this whole time, he's been mooning after Sylvia, but like he just wants Proteus back. He just wants Proteus back. And there's almost like this way that I think that you could do it, especially having spent our interim time thinking about like the sexuality fluidity that we were talking about last time. And that there is definitely a reading of this that you could impart that maybe Valentine and Proteus, you know, had done a little experimenting with each other or what have you. Um, that like, I think that there's like a version of this scene where you could almost have the two men drift off from each other while like the two women were like, it's almost like this way of like, they can't keep their eyes off of one another. And that whole like Julia Proteus thing is almost like this thing that they have to deal with as they don't want to like stop gazing at one another. But like suddenly it went very much from Sylvia to all about Proteus. And it just, it's this very weird, it's like a very hard turn to take. There is a very uh, famous production where all that was mine and Sylvia, I gave, I give thee, um, Valentine then kissed Proteus in that moment after that line, um, which to me is like a, that weirdly makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, Colin and, and Izzy and then Larry. Uh, so, so some thoughts on the whiplash. Um, and these ideas are fresh in my mind because um, I, I was on a four hour drive back to Madison today and I was listening to um, a, a film podcast discussing Greece of all things. And one thing that they, they, they discussed was um, men calling out other men on being awful to women as just an act of nagging rather than something that comes from a place of, oh, these are my morals and these are my opinions. Like, oh, you shouldn't do that because that's bad, but rather it's just kind of like a power play over the other man. And um, I guess with this like whiplash that we get with Valentine where it's like, oh, that was an awful thing you did. Okay, you've apologized, it's great now. Um, if, if you read it as like, okay, he truly cares about his friend not being awful and evil, that's really strong whiplash. But if, if you go into it with a reading of he's just trying to one up the guy and that he's not holding those values, and this is a, a fresh take in my mind after that I'm just immediately connecting after listening to that discourse, but I feel like there, there could be some room for that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Larry. So if we, if we keep it in this modern mode, the sort I hate to use the word because it's being trampled, the woke mode it, it, uh, approach to Shakespeare, um, we end up um, in the world of promising young woman in the, in the scene when the nurse is killed, the, the two men on the bed over the, over the dead body are embracing each other, saying, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. It's, 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 the moment is just like, 
it's shocking. And I, you, if you don't, if you don't think about it, it can go by very quickly. But the two men are very—they're much closer together. And the guy is there for the wedding. I mean, the next day he's going to be married, and his best friend really doesn't care about the woman. So if we can go in this direction, and we'll, we will be horrified if we keep going in that direction. But sometimes Shakespeare is just Leontes, and we don't know why the people do what they do. You just go, it happened. And, and then, you know, Ariana, you have to decide <laughs> what you're gonna do about that. <laughs> and you go, do you just let the women drift off to the side? And that's the way it is. Because that's a statement in itself, that the women have no voice. Um, but the world that the two men in Promising Young Women, um, before, you know, when they just come out of med school, that is their world. The women are, are, are just objects and the women are there to fuck, so, you know, excuse me. And, and, and then you just toss them away and you ruin them. And then you go on with your great life. You know, it's because it's what men do. So we have to be careful about, you know, what road we want to tread on as we, as we move this forward. Do we go in a modern sensibility or do we just, we just do the Leontes and go, that's, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I, I think it, <laughs> I feel like this moment uh, similar to me to the end of a measure for measure where it's like, you've really got to make a very strong directorial choice. Like you have to, you have to make a choice. Right. And that's, that's almost like, <laughs> it doesn't really matter what choice you make. You just have to make a choice. Um, I'm sorry. I don't know quite who was first Jane, Mitch, Sam. Sam, I, I think I you're just, going to build off something, so you should go first. Yeah, if you don't mind, because I just wanted to 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 piggyback off of Colin, because I, I think that I didn't make myself fully clear. The like the I expected when I first got to this scene that the indignity uh, the indignity that that Valentine would feel would be coming from the action of the rape, you know, and that would be what he would be calling Proteus out on in this moment, but. The, he starts that way with Ruffy and let go that rude, uncivil touch. And then from that moment on, that is the only reference to the actual thing that just happened. Every other complaint that he has is about the betrayal that happened to him earlier. And the way that it made me as an actor feel, like without doing anything else or discussing this discussion in it, was like, it was like the scene in the notebook where I want, I had the same energy for me as like, I wrote you every day. Like you broke my heart when I love you so much with like this version of it where like, I, I could almost see a version of it where like Valentine just like starts crying in the middle of this speech. Like Proteus starts weeping. Like there's this weird version of my head where it's like the two of them down on the ground, like clutching each other in this like apology segment while like the two women are almost standing in the back being like what is wrong with these two men but like it was like it feels more like a lover who has been spurned confronting another lover than it does about any of the other things that have been going on in this play and so that's where the disconnect um and that that speed bump came um but that, that that's a really interesting point and and, and helped me clarify how i was feeling so thank you colin
Absolutely. Yes. And I think that's a really important point. I also just wanted to give us the definition of the word assail, because I do think it's important here. There were different ways that this was seen as a verb, right? One is attack, assault, address. One is approach with offers of love, woo with a vigor, attempt to seduce, and assailing as an adjective meant wooing, loving, or amorous during this time. So I do think we're more in attack mode, but I do definitely want to identify that there is a bit of, how do I say it? There is a bit of a lack of clarity around what actually occurs in that moment. I'd say that 100% it's unpleasant, but the level of violence I think is not actually, I don't know, I, I feel like if it's like, if it's like a moment in Titus Andronicus where the young daughter is, is, is raped, it is talked about as rape, right? And so there is something here about the word assail that um, to me, hopeful, I mean, maybe this is just me being very hopeful that it was something I, I, I don't, I don't know. I just wanted to put that out there that, that we do have a, it's one of the few stage directions that we get in this play. And the word is a sale, not attempted rape. Um, yeah, I think that's important. Sorry. But yeah. Mitch, did you, just did a couple things. Something? That's, yeah. that's very helpful. Um, and, the, and the text that Proteus is saying is I'll force thee yield to my desire. So I do think he's, he's going in that direction, but I don't think there's any indication textually of like how far down that path we get yeah. at all. Right. It could literally just be, he declares his intention to do that, which is awful enough. Right. And, yeah. and then in comes Valentine um, on this Valentine Proteus moment. It, it does feel, feel to me like I think these are two men speaking genuinely to each other right like I think that they're they're both deeply affected by what the other one has done and I think um I, I typed this a few minutes ago but I just wanted to say out loud Valentine doesn't know as far as Valentine knows Proteus is help is taking his letters and delivering them to Sylvia and saying like look at all this great you know stuff that Valentine is saying about you right and then then Valentine sees him going after Sylvia for himself. And I think that that's probably very jarring for Valentine. And then for Proteus to get caught by his friend is also very jarring. So I think that this probably is Sam quite emotional for the two men. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like a, I read this textually as a like very genuinely felt, deeply felt moment of reconciliation between these two men. Um mm where the women are sort of not factors. Um, and that's what's know, awful about it to me. That's what's <laughs> awful. Yeah. That's what's like, so, oh, like that's what just makes me want to tear my hair out about this scene. Um, and Sam, thank you for identifying that just immediately, that that is really where kind of where the horror lies is that there is absolutely no, oh my God, is everyone okay? Um, I think if I was directing this, I would definitely have Julia go and attend to Sylvia 
um, and have that be a moment between them as the men are having whatever is going on with them. I also also think it's really important that Julia is here and that whatever whatever Proteus was going to attempt, he had someone else there. So that is another thing that is important to me when we're thinking about the level of violence, which I know it's like, there is a huge amount of emotional violence that is inflicted upon these women in this scene. And there is absolutely no way to get around this. But thinking about the physical aspect of, of how to stage this, I actually don't think I would do something as extreme as a moment with Angelo and Isabella in Measure for Measure, for example. Like, I just don't think that that is the, that is where we are. Or if anything is happening, there is such a fast stop that hopefully we're obviously in a level of huge emotional trauma, but that, but that it's, it's different from the other scenes in Shakespeare where someone is assaulted. Right. And I think that that is important somehow. This is like, I'm grasping at straws, but I feel like somehow that's really important. Um, Jane, go ahead. Well, I have sort of two divergent thoughts to share here. One is um, to build on what Larry was saying. If you haven't yet seen Promising Young Woman, I would say see it because just it is a pretty, it's an outstanding film in my opinion. And it's it's incredibly jarring. And I think that we would have, a, I think we could have a, an entire podcast episode about this play and the context of that scene that Larry described. Um, and, 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 and I think we would, there would be a part of us that would be saying, you know what, gosh, it's really horrible to say this, but maybe there is some weird essential male nature that allows certain people to go down these kinds of roads without remorse, regret, and that like the male bond trumps everything else because it, that's a contemporary film. That's not Shakespeare's time, that's our time. And like, we're still dealing with these issues. They haven't evaporated. They clearly are very much a part of people's reality. Um, and so, yeah, that that just really struck me. So thank you for bringing that reference in there. I hadn't made that connection and it was very visceral for me when you said it. Um, and the other thing that I thought of that is less um, uh, horrific to consider is the uh, something that's been referenced throughout our conversations, which is that um, kind of dichotomy of courtly versus romantic love. Um, and this time, uh, being a time when when people were exploring both right it's sort of the early modern era and we've and and these notions of courtly love are starting to get challenged with with ideas of romance and i think that um several critics have, have raised this notion that two gentlemen of verona is very much a parody of both and sort of looking at the the silliness and the different decisions and choices that that people make when and how easy it is to kind of get sucked into one and then get sucked into the other. And you see these characters kind of going back and forth between following the um, sort of prototypes of courtly love and then also having these, these moments of kind of getting carried away with uh, romantic ideas. Yes, absolutely. Um, Colin and Izzy and then Mitch. So I guess to, to pick up a brief thread from a, a couple episodes ago, um, where we were talking about reading this play as parable and um, specifically with bringing up Promising Young Woman, um, the other media reference that I connected with is just the novel version of 13 Reasons Why, 
where we have two texts that are like explicitly, uh, well, for better or for worse, they're just like, hi, men, here's how to live a life and not do awful things. And we're going to use bad examples to tell you that. And because the focus is on how men should conduct themselves, you have very poorly written women characters because they're entirely just the result of other people's actions and they're not the focus of the narrative. And that's just, you know, I guess it's not a requirement of parable, but it's it's a misstep that uh, keep happens time and time again when you have such a, a direct, like you're, you're prescribing behavior with your text. And uh, so, yeah, I just um, bringing up that film made me uh, connect back to that, the discussion we had a couple episodes back. Absolutely. Great, great catch there. Uh, Mitch. And I, I just, I just want to say now too, I think we should be a little bit careful about lumping the two women in as, or speaking about them as one unit in this scene. They're both victims of what's happening in different ways, um, but they actually respond qu quite differently, right? Like Julia alters the course of the rest of the play. Sylvia is silent. Yeah, and so I just I just want to chart that actually they they follow a, a sort of slightly different paths. And S Sylvia, I've really grown quite fond of Sylvia <laughs> over the course of like reading this play. Like she she speaks with a clarity I think that I, it's hard for me maybe other than the servants uh, to think of another character that like does. And so and, and she calls people out, right? Like it, it is it doesn't feel accidental to me that then she falls completely silent um, for the rest of this play. Yeah, that is always a difficult issue to deal with. It happens with Viola too. It's like, why did she stop speaking? Um, Ellen, did you, did you have something as well to add about Sylvia in this scene? I don't know. I think I could talk, we could probably talk for hours about, about it. I mean, I'm glad this play exists because uh, the two gentlemen of Verona, it's not two gentlemen and Julia and Sylvia. So like no one, I didn't have any preconceptions that things were going to end well for the, for the women, like as they never do. And I do oh, think it's, um, yeah, I think I, I, I've never seen a production of this play, but I would love to uh, know how, what the different choices were to sort of um, navigate that moment. Um, I always think it's actually quite a gift whenever an actor stops, whenever a character stops speaking, I think it's quite a gift to the actor playing that part to kind of figure out and um, the rest of the, the, you know, to map things there. Um, obviously she doesn't speak anymore because like she's breached, who else can she appeal to? Who, and you know, she has no power. She knows exactly where she is. She's hurtling towards the end of this play and like what a slap in the face at the end how discouraging, like how utterly demotivating, um, but also uh, do, do people tend to like Proteus and Valentine when they watch this play? Like surely not. <laughs> no, like, no. I, no. I, no. Which I think is In actually kind of great. I think, that's, I think that's kind of a really good thing um, because you get to see this bald faced kind of behavior for what it is. Um, yeah, the production that I watched that was a, a film of the RSC version, um, whenever Proteus had his speech, like where he was like, yeah, I guess I guess I don't love Julia anymore. The audience was like, oh, like they were just like, so like, oh, yeah. and then the line, 
we're man, but constant. He were perfect. Everyone was like, oh, get out. You know, like it was literally like the audience was just like, oh, that's kind of great. I mean, I love, I love that. Yeah. That's kind of amazing. You know, yeah. I, I, I think about stuff like that all the time, like original performance practices and how the audience relationship with the play itself or, or, or going to the theater would have been different where that immersion of, oh, the audience doesn't say anything while actors are performing just like wouldn't have existed. And I think that there's all of these lead lines. Like I, I really think that when Iago says, what's he then that says I play the villain like is kind of a line that's directly responsible for like hoping that somebody is like you fucking asshole in the audience and then him immediately be going and what's he then like you know what i mean and this back and forth and i got to see night of the burning pestle and it's first production at the sam wanamaker theater when we were all at lambda and they actually encouraged you to do that like I have never seen a theater try to get an audience drunker. Like the number of little mid-act breaks where you weren't allowed to leave, but people would come in for you to buy cocktails and like encourage you to talk to the people who are sitting next to you. So that by the end of the play, everybody was hooting and hollering things. Like, I do think that these moments are built into the play that way. And it's great when you get that natural reaction, but I am, look, Clearly his first play, right? Clearly a very early juvenile work of Shakespeare. But uh, Sylvia is written too well for me not to think that a lot of this is intentional. And I think that that's why I got like so ham on nobody, none of these noble men. They're the, all the opposite of the thing that they tell the audience and other characters that they are. That I, I don't even think in Shakespeare's time, I, I would be willing to take a solid bet that in its own time period, we were not supposed to like these two men. Which like, leads I think that we were supposed to find something worthy in that, like, oh, look at them being all dudes with one another and reaffirming the social status. But I don't think that, like, when we all left the day-long play that we were at, that we were supposed to walk out and be like, I'm supposed to emulate these men. I, I think it's quite the opposite. And he's going to end up being too good of a writer. And even in this, what is considered to be the first text, like really Sylvia is written when she does get to talk, like those are some fire, clear, concise speeches that she has. And it it beggars my imagination a little bit to think that even in its time period, I'm supposed to give these two men the the benefit of the doubt. Um, But that's just sort of my position now. Yeah, I would think that she has nothing left to say in the play. She could say a lot to the audience. <laughs> they could really be, they're going to get on her side. They're going to be on her side. Yeah. And that, yeah. Uh, and that kind of ties into the uh, long, uh, long British tradition of uh, pantomime. I've, yeah. uh, I've, I've been to a couple of uh, pantomimes when I was in uh, England for Christmas. And, uh, you know, the audience... You, I'm sure you know you. how it is. Who yeah, is yeah. The audience is encouraged to like part interact with the cast and uh, boo the villain and everything. So yeah, that uh, that that to- I'm I'm willing to believe that totally would have been a valid a valid angle back in when Shakespeare was performing. And it and, still is at the Glo- if you go see a production at the Globe, like yeah. that that's yeah. it, right? Everybody's yeah. booing and hissing and cheering and stamping and mm. yeah. 
definitely that interactive like reaction provoking kind of moments I think are sprinkled throughout. Absolutely. And I do think it that just it's- occurred to me like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Nothing. Never mind. I was just, it just occurred to me how much fun of like rich people Shakespeare was making in this play. That's all. He was yes. just making like and, young, and- young, dumb, rich people. He's like make, having a whale of a time tearing them apart. It's pretty funny. Oh my gosh. Yes. That, thank you for bringing that up because that was something that actually, I feel like came up in act one where we were yeah. like an act two, like the only people that seem grounded um are the you know our launch and speed you know they're the ones who tell it like it is and and they they're the crowd pleasing characters for sure um i also think that it is important um to note that out of shakespeare's time this play has frequently cut this part of this scene the assail and the all that was mine and Sylvia, I give thee, have historically throughout many centuries been cut by different because they just didn't know what to do with it. Yeah, but I that's just that's literally cutting away the problem that's at the right. core of this entire play. Right. Like, why do the play then? Like, really, like, I think I mean, I hate I hate this scene. And this is the reason why I've had problems with this play for years yeah. but at the same time like if you're going to tell the story tell the whole story because i think that's story. just tell yeah. the messy story otherwise like it's like stopping into the woods at act one exactly it's like doing into the woods jr we don't need into the woods jr thank you <laughs> and, go ahead mitch <laughs> well and we've sort of like charted the subtler ways in which these men are behaving in problematic ways throughout the entire play and so like to not follow that through to fruition is almost worse right yeah because like <laughs> like playing out the end result of that like maybe accomplishes something for us uh yeah, as an audience yeah. you know like yeah it would be uh it would be cowardly not to i just to- realized who Proteus and Valentine remind me of? They remind me of the main characters of Peep Show. <laughs> oh my god! <gasps> I tried watching that show and it made me so dizzy. I had to stop after like one episode. <laughs> and and no, I love that Mitchell Peep and Peep Show is a British comedy with. Yeah, basically they just they uh, they 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 narrate their worst instincts and often like it's it, the worst instincts that everybody recognizes in themselves but they tend to follow their worst instincts and that's that i just realized that that's kind of what this reminds me of and they're also filming themselves the whole time it's like they're holding on to the camera and it it's a very dizzy oh, show morally and physically <laughs> <laughs> yeah it sounds like it yeah mitch go ahead yeah, yeah one other observation if we're uh, bef- before we make it to this last chunk to read um is that Julia is still to some degree disguised as a man. Um, I mean, this is about to happen when we read, but I think the Duke mistakes her for a boy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this marriage or this betrothal, I guess, of um, Proteus and Julia is happening between two boys, between two men on stage, um, which is like sort of a, p- puts a point on some of the things we've been talking about about the like male 
you know, like like the male world, I guess, mattering to them more and the the male bonds mattering more. Obviously he knows that this is Julia now, but like what the audience is seeing is these like two men um, yeah. confessing their love for each other, which is interesting. Well, and and Sam, we, we focused a lot on the uh, a sale moment, um, which in my head, just because it's so nasty, I've just transferred it to Mercutio saying, a sale, a sale, like in, um, <laughs> in Romeo and Juliet. Um, but what do you make of, so the faint, which could either be because valentine has just kissed proteus which could be another reason to faint right if that's part or it could be the all that was mine and sylvia was mine and sylvia as we pointed out i give thee what what is going on for julia and then she has this other thing where she's like oh wait sorry the wrong ring like the wrong letter yeah, i have i'm starting <laughs> to have thoughts about that because this is now the second time that she's done it mm-hmm. and i'm kind of wondering if she's doing it on purpose yeah i don't think yeah. she's that dumb you know what I, I mean? I like, I think she knows she knows what that letter is, is from Proteus that she's torn up before she gives it to Sylvia. I really like I, I didn't think that when we first read through it, but then reading this one, like there's no way that she would accidentally give mm. Proteus her, hit the ring that he gave her. I truly don't. I, I don't see a world oh, no. where that's the case. And so, oh, no. Can you hear me? We just heard, uh, I don't see a world where that's the case. Oh yeah. That, I mean, that's basically what I was saying. Yeah. I don't see a world where that's a case where she would do that by accident. I don't think that would be an accident. I really like that choice a lot, actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. Just because I think she needs to let him know she wants, at least she wants to let him know that she's there. And I think also that she witnessed what happened and like to see what his response is. You know, and it's it just makes me sad that <laughs> I wish I, I think Julia is a strong character, but at the same time, like it just makes me sad how devoted she is to him. Yeah. You know, I mean, she's whether uh, depend no matter what level directorially this is taken in terms of like how far Proteus goes in this moment with Sylvia, like it's still horrific. Yeah, and absolutely. Julia, like inadvertently has been abused through all by Proteus through all of his actions towards Sylvia. And yet still, no matter what, like she's by his side and her last line, right? I mean, I believe this is her last line. Her last line is, and mine, and I mine, like Proteus is getting what he wants and I'm getting everything I want. What was the hard to, for me, Sam, the actor, it's hard to reconcile with that. What was the, uh, I can't remember, what was the name of the, what was the name of the uh, woman who uh, Angelo used to be in love with in Measure for Measure? Mariana. Mariana, yes. This kind of, I mean, I get, and coming at it from that way, I guess it it, it feels like another trial run Shakespeare was uh, doing kind of unconsciously. And of course, kind of by by that play, he kind of worked... uh, worked kind of an acknowledgement of it into the uh, text, like saying, uh, she, I mean, she should have stopped loving him after what he did to her, but it's, it's just like incredible that she didn't. I mean, yeah. Is it, is it a, is it a statement on true love or is it a statement on de- like blind devotion? Yeah. yeah. No, because I, it's like, is, is, is it because Proteus is Julia's true love or she's just 
it's the the constancy of women I actually from a psychological perspective this is a little bit tough to talk about but I um a dear friend of mine has had a history of abusive relationships and the way that she described it to me is when you're in an abusive relationship you get addicted to adrenaline essentially you get addicted to the high of being scared and it's very very difficult to separate yourself from that and i do wonder i mean it 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 just it makes the idea of sort of abusive both physical and psychological relationships it complicates our ideas about people but that that is definitely a, a reality that there there can be an addiction to the actual body chemicals of being afraid and being scared um that can sort of permanently um mess with your idea of intimacy right that there has to be an adrenaline rush um and then also you start learning that and this is what happens you know with children that are abused is that they start learning that if they're abused by their parents for example that love is equated with pain right and so that that people begin to believe that the only way that they can express their love is through violence um, and it's, it's, of course, it's vastly unhealthy, but it is definitely, I think, an, an element that might be in here. And the, the idea of the, of the wounded lover, right, is such a huge trope. I do wonder if there is something, a, a sort of, you know, proto version of that woven in about the sort of addiction to dramatic situations mm-hmm. and, up the ups and downs of emotions um yeah Yeah. it's a a bit disturbing to think about but i I definitely think that it's a a, an aspect of the psychology of relationships that's important to acknowledge Um, well and also it also becomes a norm that's that's all it's because you it's also just not knowing different yeah (laughs) you know and yeah, it's I mean I was just I was basically just reiterating what you were saying honestly mm-hmm. about like your your knowledge of what love it's what you're taught that, that love is. Yeah. And that's part of not being able to be proud of it. That's all. That was Yeah. Absolutely. Just, There's just also a, like a she went to go get him. She's like not going home without him. Right? Mm. Like it is a little bit of that too. I mean there may be all this other sort of underlying psychology but I just had somebody tell me the other day um that she didn't really want a particular job, but she felt like since she had applied for it, she was going to like fight to get it. Yeah, I mean, it's a simpler, like less heavy situation, but just that idea of like, well, I've pursued this. And so for my own sense of self and my own like sense of like winning and getting what I want or getting what I, you know, set out to claim as mine, I'm just going to keep going after it, even if I'm not sure that it's what I really want anymore. Mm. There's just, I mean, she, she's really set off on a pretty big adventure to like go after this dude. You know, well, yeah, exactly. And, and imagine like leaving empty handed. I think that's like, I think that's a very good point. Is that, you know, and, and Julia's a, a very determined person in overall. Yeah. So yeah, it's like going through, going through all of this and risking her life, like this journey to get there she risked her life and her livelihood to do this and then just the idea of leaving with nothing is and of course i don't think it's like like you were saying honor it's not 
right? If she comes back empty-handed, what's going to happen to her and her reputation? It's not, it's not on Proteus, unfortunately. It's all on how is her reputation affected by this adventure she's gone on. Yeah, Sam, go ahead. I, I know that we're just having like a discussion trying to find the justifications for this scene in like the real sense or like the truthful sense. But when in looking at this particular moment and, and when Sam mentioned that Julia's last line is, and I mine, I just sort of looked over this little beat again. And I think it's really interesting because at the top of it with Proteus's, then men in their minds, tis true, oh, heaven were man, but constant. That whole first beginning, he could be talking about any of the sins that he's committed, not just his unwaveringness towards Julia, but his betrayal of his friend. The only part of that speech that is specific to Julia is that last little couplet at the end. Then Valentine says, come, come a hand from either. Uh, let me be blessed to make this happy close. We're, we're twitting. It's not about the women. It's that the two friends are friends again. And then I'm not 100% sure that Proteus's response that bear witness heaven, I have my wish forever, is that he has Julia's love finally that he wanted from the beginning of the play. That line very well could be read that their friendship being bonded is the wish that I have forever. And let's say we're in the production where they do kiss and that's what makes Julia pass out or the production where there's we're really leaning into these two men being fools and we're really not supposed to like it. That end I mind could be looking at the two dudes who are like holding hands and back in love again and could be incredibly ironic, right? Like there is a very ironic reading of that line matching the energy uh, that was just being brought through this reading of Sylvia where like suddenly Julia has now learned the wisdom that sort of Sylvia has always had with these inconstant, awful suitors all around her. So I, I do think that even that moment at the end is really complicated by this man relationship. And it is not at all clear cut about what these two dudes are actually happy about and what their wish forever here is in this moment. Absolutely. And I wanna get to the sort of continuation of possession. Um, that runs through the end of this play. So let us read from where the Duke, Cheerio, and the Outlaws enter. This is on page 95. Whenever you're ready. A prize, a prize, a prize. Forbear, forbear, I say. It is my Lord the Duke. Your grace is welcome to a man disgraced, banished Valentine. Sir Valentine? Now, yonder is Sylvia, and Sylvia's mine. Cheerio? Give back or else embrace thy death. Come not within the measure of my wrath. Do not name Sylvia thine. If once again Verona shall not, if once again Verona shall not hold thee. Here she stands. Take but possession of her with a touch. I, there, I dare thee but to breathe upon my love. Sir Valentine, I care not for her. I... I hold him but a fool that will endanger his body for a girl that loves him not. I claim her not, and therefore she is thine. The more degenerate and base art thou to make such means for her as thou hast done and leave her on such slight conditions? Now, by the honor of my ancestry, I do applaud thy spirit, Valentine, and think thee worthy of an empress's love 
know them. I here forget all former griefs, cancel all grudge, repeal thee home again, plead a new state to thy unrivaled merit, to which I thus subscribe. Sir Valentine, thou art a gentleman, and well derived. Take thou thy Sylvia, for thou hast deserved her. I thank your grace. The gift hath made me happy. I now beseech you, for your daughter's sake, to grant one boon that I shall ask of you. I grant it for thine own, whatever it be. These banished men that I have kept with all are men endued with worthy qualities. Forgive them what they have committed here and let them be recalled from their exile. They are reformed, civil, full of good, and fit for great employment, worthy Lord. Thou hast prevailed. I pardon them and thee. Dispose of them as thou knowst thou their deserts. Come, let us go. We will include all jars with triumphs, mirth, and rare solemnity. And as we walk along, I dare be bold with our discourse to make your grace to smile. What think you of this page, my lord? I think the boy hath grace in him. <gasps> he blushes. <laughs> I warrant you, my lord, more grace than boy. What mean you by that saying? Please you, I'll tell you as we pass along that you will wonder what hath fortuned. Uh, come, Proteus, tis your penance but to hear the story of your love discovered, that done our day of marriage shall be yours, one feast, one house, one mutual happiness. Oi vey. <laughs> oh my god. Happy ending? <laughs> Sam is like, nope. Nope, 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 nope. Yeah, it is really difficult after that moment to then have Cheerio come in and be like, no, no, she's mine. And the idea of possession and property still runs so, so strongly through the end of this play. I, I think he does that, Cheerio does that because he suddenly sees the Duke. <laughs> yeah. Sylvia. Sylvia's mine. <laughs> I think yes. he's like, oh, I gotta get on the ball here. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Did you feel that, Miles? I don't know. Then I, then I, it says he enters, uh, he enters with uh, the Duke and the outlaws. So, uh, I mean, right. I, I mean, I guess he could still like be making a, uh, kind of making a show of like Sylvia's mine at the, uh, and I mean, mostly, yeah. I guess, mostly yeah. putting it on for the Duke's sake. Now that Daddy's here, I mean, it's right. And now I got Daddy with me, and well, now I have a different well, opinion. You know? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, the Duke was. Uh, I mean, the Duke. Were, well, yeah, the Duke left before he said, uh, kind of more the more to be revenged on Eglamore. But mm. uh, and I think, but I think also, kind of because uh, because Sylvia's right, she's right there. So uh, I'm, of course, I'm going to make a show of being the uh, devoted lover. And then Oof. that, uh, but then, then of course, it doesn't take much for uh, no. him to uh, crumple at the first sign of trouble. Yeah, I think it's interesting that Valentine has the last line because traditionally in Shakespeare plays, the person with the last line is the highest status at the end of the play, right? They're the person who's now in charge. So that is interesting to me. I wonder how <laughs> sort of blithely just unaware of the complications Valentine is when he proclaims that final 
line of just like, hmm. oh yeah, let's all get married together. As if like, we don't have anything to unpack before <laughs> marriage. Like, it's like, oh my God. Oh, no, it's literally the most interesting live. thing. The most interesting thing to discuss is on the way is, oh, and this chick chick over here dressed up like a that's the only thing that needs to be reported from the last 10 minutes mm. that's yes fine. right yeah. there's no like oh yeah we're gonna talk about what happened to your daughter what yeah. your daughter just experienced yeah. i love yeah. the gall of like for sylvia's on behalf of sylvia i would love for you to pardon the men who kidnapped her yeah on daughter's oh, behalf. i think she would really no oh, god the internet oh no we <laughs> we just we just heard the um yeah the the part about the uh <laughs> please pardon your daughter's kidnappers um absolutely well and then the also the line that is just so comical to me is like when valentine is like they're reformed civil full of good they're fit for great employment and like has anything we've seen prove to us that these outlaws are competent at doing anything it's like yeah. not, not, not so much so it is yeah. kind of the only way that i can stomach this ending is that everyone is just so blithely ignorant of everything and that it's almost like it is like julia and sylvia are just trapped in this play where they keep opening mm. doors and there's like a wall behind the door and they just can't get through and then everyone's like why are you sad it's great and happy like that they all of a sudden it kind of turns into this weird like clowning routine at the end where it's like well we've only got one page left it's time for a happy ending and the women are like yeah. get me out of here you know i i would actually yeah. love to sort of do a weird meta theatrical kind of interpretation of this play where everyone kind of leaves and the last image that we are left with is julia and sylvia just looking at each other like how do we exist in this world i actually think there could be something really interesting like that the yeah. play leaves them and that the last image that we're left with is these two women looking at each other like, how do we go on in this world? How do we exist in this world? How do we, you know, I, I, I just think there could be something really interesting done with the, the ending staging wise. Um, I think it's also interesting that Proteus doesn't have any more lines in the play, which is interesting to me. Um, uh, Colin and Izzy and then Mitch, please. Um, I was going to say something um, pretty similar uh, starting out with the the outlaws thing where it's just like another mediocre guy you're fine like you're gonna go um like just the outlaws are not competent at their jobs we've talked about this it's just every guy is not only goes against what they said they're set out to do but it's just like so mediocre in everything they do and like colin you were talking about this the other day we were having a fun discussion but um with uh, you. Well, I just, I mean, I, we, we briefly brought it up earlier, but anytime that we can celebrate male me mediocrity, take the opportunity. Um, but uh, it's, I guess less than male mediocrity, we're also talking about just the, the weird abruptness of the yes, ending yes. and the change here. So um, also any opportunity I can take to uh, talk about the 2000 film uh, Chicken Run, I will take, but um, oh, oh yes, okay this is a podcast you cannot see the reaction of the people in this zoom call but it looks like sorry i just got i got very excited because i love that movie it's fine <laughs> awesome. 
Please continue. Um, so it's it good. Can, it, it's an amazing film. It is uh, Marxist literature for children. And uh, what's better than that? But it is like really devout to its message until the very end where it's like, ah, yes. And then the mediocre man gets to save the day and drive the plane. And it, it's just like, what happened? Why is that there? And um, one uh, hot take, one theory of that is just a uh, production notes. Uh, there were there were some pre-screeners they didn't like the ending they wanted that character redeemed so we're just gonna switch it around and um i think it, it's it's not likely but i think a fun read of the the end of this plays oh it was it was just production notes we wanted to have a happy ending there was an alternate ending that just got it hit the cutting room floor because it was too much of a bummer so we're switching it out so everyone can leave the theater happy yeah i it does feel like it gets cut off at the knees a, a bit, doesn't it? Um, it's interesting. Um, go ahead, Mitch. Also, Chicken Run for the win. I just, yeah, I just want to say again that I, I do think there's a little bit of a difference between Julia and Sylvia here. Like, in order to make Julia sort of upset about what's going on once she, once it's determined that she's going to marry Proteus, we have to work against the text. Not totally opposed to that. But we're having to look at that and I mine line and say, oh, does she really mean that? Whereas with with Sylvia, we don't. Right. So I, I do think there's a possibility that for whatever reason we've justified that Julia comes to a place where she's on board with this, as unbelievable as that might like seem to us sitting here. Um, whereas like Sylvia is being bartered at the end of this and like does not speak from the moment that this thing, whatever it is that happens to her, happens to her. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there was an interesting interpretation, the, the RSC filmed version that I saw, everyone left the stage except for Proteus and Julia. And they were like on opposite sides of the stage and they just sort of had this breath and then kind of, looked at each other and then there was this blackout right there was just it it wasn't quite resolved but it was like we have a new understanding of who we are and we will go forward with this knowledge we don't know what it's going to lead to but there was what I liked about it was that it gave it actually there was a moment for each couple to have this moment of like checking in with each other and the Sylvia actually I remember with the staging, I believe she came up and she took Valentine's hand on the Cheerio give back or else embrace like that. The Duke's in terms of staging, what was interesting about it was that the Duke was sort of like, not so much saying Valentine, you win her as it was. I understand now that you are truly my daughter's choice and to me, it made the ending a bit more palatable, right? That there was this acknowledgement that it's her choice and that I am formally giving my consent, um, which is kind of in, in the text, uh, but it was very much that interpretation no, I, I, I think got it's in from the, text. the staging. Yeah. I think it's in the text because I'm, at least I'm trying to work on know, it right? where like, he's please. hesitant. <laughs> he's hesitant he's seeing oh my god this is what it is mm-hmm. and i guess you are you are of value and well and then then that's the way it's going to be he's he's it's not that he's like yes you're the one 
it's I guess this is what it is. Yeah. And so that that um, that he, he's still under he's even when he finishes he's still understanding what what just happened. Mm -hmm. Well, the the stakes are actually that this little last little bit of conversation did make me realize that the stakes are actually a little bit higher here than we've been talking about. Technically, Valentine is uh, banished. He's the head of a bandit army. They sort of have the Duke under sword point and there hasn't been a pardon for Valentine yet when Valentine says that he'll kill Turio, who is the rightful betrothed to her at this point in time because he does have her father's you know, seal of approval. So that line when Valentine is saying like, I will kill you if you step closer right now is an actual act of rebellion against the order in front of the Duke who is technically his prisoner. Like that's a yeah. pretty high stakes moment here mm -hmm. and, and, and does complicate it somewhat for me a little bit in my mind because yeah, then the Duke is like, oh, oh okay, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you have me kind of captured and I, you know, I've known that my daughter's been in love with you and Turio just like didn't defend himself at all in a tough situation. So I do think that there is that, that, that slightly changes the calculus of this very, it doesn't change what happened before, but it does change slightly the way that I was thinking about this last little bit where, where, where that is more of a high stakes situation that I was sort of thinking it was at the top of it but mm -hmm. but we are very much at the end of 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 you know if comedies are about the social order coming together oddly like everything is at its most frayed mm -hmm. like the page the page before the play ends <laughs> yeah <laughs> absolutely it there is danger i think in this last scene there is a lot of danger and i think i think you've absolutely hit upon it that if we don't feel that this is a situation that is ready to be exploded that we're actually we're actually missing the stakes and it's not just well let me explain to you what happened that actually things need to be resolved in this it's just happened so fast that it's like yeah. oh the, the audience knows that these men are fools but the duke does not know that the bandits who have them at sword points are a bunch of clowns like yeah, you know yeah. what i mean that's that Absolutely. is that is audience information not character information yeah uh mitch go ahead the, yeah the thing that seems to impress the duke is that valentine is willing to fight jurio uh, for Sylvia and that Cheerio then backs off, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, it is true that the Duke knows that Sylvia was in love with Valentine. Um, but I don't see anything in the text here that is about Sylvia's desire. So I think, yeah, it's a, it's a valid choice for a director to make to have Sylvia walk up and grab his hand and then we can go from there. But I, I've been looking here. I don't see anything... Like all of the Duke's texts is about Valentine's worth. Um, and I don't think we have any textual evidence about how Sylvia feels about being with Valentine post Valentine offering her up, whatever that meant in that moment, right? Post Valentine's moment with Proteus. Mm -hmm. Like I, I don't see mm -hmm. any textual evidence. I just want to be a little bit I don't want us to rescue this. Like, like I would be yeah. careful about like us I, trying to rescue this play. 
over trying to rescue this play when it doesn't yes. deserve to be rescued. I really think that is such a key point. I mean, I think, yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head there, Mitch, that it's like, we can definitely sort of do some amazing verbal gymnastics to try and rescue this play. Um, but that it is not, I would also argue that Shakespeare continued this trend of having problematic endings to comedies totally. in every comedy someone is left out of the resolution it's usually not the women which is important um but someone is left out of the happiness at the end of every comedy and that is a feature that happens um and even into the romances too like what happens to caliban and what happens to ariel even being freed, like, is Ariel going to be okay? Um, and what happens to Malvolio? And Sir Toby is banished. And there's just... Comedy doesn't mean funny, right? It means it ends with a marriage. That is the... That is what the definition of a comedy is not that we go, ha ha. It is that it ends in a marriage and a tragedy is that it ends in a death. So I feel like we veered so close to a death or a violent act of some kind the only way is if we have one marriage, we need one marriage, right? That is the way we resolve this play. Um, and I, I do like the idea of leaving of the, the end being the audience going, what the fuck just happened? You know, like I really, I actually think there is an element of that especially like the Duke enters and we get two pages before the end. There's no like, oh my God, here's your daughter. She was kidnapped and then attempted rape. And then now she's okay, question mark. Also, yeah, okay, here she is. Now she's getting your approval betrothed. The the one moment that I, I wonder, because there have been such tension between the Duke and Sylvia throughout this play, the one moment that I feel like could be a moment of potential reconciliation between the two of them, because that's another relationship that needs some resolving as well, is that moment where he says, think thee worthy of an empress love. And that perhaps there is something of him putting her, thinking of her as an empress um, that where we could do something. But again, yeah, I actually kind of like, if the audience leave this play and is like, that was fucked up. Like I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. I'm kind of very much okay with that. Um, those, that's my preference actually, <laughs> to be honest, whether I'm doing a tragedy or a comedy, I really want the audience to leave and be like, the fuck just happened. Um, or vomit as in Fuente Ovahuna, you know, either way, it's totally great. Um, <laughs> um, because I, I, I think, the virtue of Shakespeare is that you do talk about the play at the bar afterwards, right? You want to talk about the play. You want to say, what did I just watch? How can I develop these themes? What did the character do? What would I have done differently? Like, I, re I really, I, I think there is, in a sort of Brechtian sense, right? Oh boy, we brought Brecht in. But like, you want the audience to go out the door and talk and think 
And I, I don't think that Shakespeare, this may, maybe is an un, unpopular thought, but I, I really don't think as much as Shakespeare was absolutely a commercial venture, these plays were absolutely a commercial venture. I also think there is someone, there is in all of these plays, someone who wants to provoke you to think about human beings. And maybe that's what we're left with. I don't know. Mm. Um, yes, it did did happen. Actually, Jane, we were doing Fuente Ovahuna, a scene that has a really violent offstage uh, torture scene. And there was just a lot of sounds and cranks and people. It, it, so nobody actually saw anything. It was just like the rest of the characters reacting to the sounds. And our opening night, this woman just like ran out in the vom and vomed, <laughs> which was like... <laughs> whoa and we were all like yes it was really messed up <laughs> it was really messed up anyway um does anyone have any i what are your final thoughts having gone through this journey what what do you think about this play and do we even do it you know is it a play that is worth making your audience leave feeling like enraged and confused <laughs> like what I mean, what are our feelings? <laughs> well, this play just came, seems kind of like a, a study for all of Shakespeare's better like future plays to me. That because we see so many elements that appear like in this play, we have seen so many things that appear in other plays in the future. Mm -hmm. um, that's I think the thing that's the most interesting to me is like seeing him developing these, yeah, like these little storylines or these other things so i don't know i don't know if we do this play because i think he does it better in other plays personally um but i'm i also just get really mad at the end so i'm speaking yeah. from an emotional, an emotional place as is absolutely you're right <laughs> like i feel like again what do these plays provoke in you they provoke thinking they also typically if they're done well provoke a very strong emotion of yeah. some type um, yeah, Sam. Um, I like the problematic plays. I like the juvenilia mm -hmm. and and the ones that aren't done because yeah, you. I I think that there's right like that's us biasing knowing who Shakespeare is going to become, but like to become the writer that Shakespeare is going to be, his plays had had to like hit. So like Two Gentlemen of Verona got him his next job, right? So. On, on some on some level, there's something worthwhile to explore there. And um, I, I don't know of all of the different sort of versions that we've teased out of this play, which one um, I like the most, but I, I sort of am going with you. And I, and I know Ariana that we kind of have a similar, um, we, we enjoy similar things in the theater. Um, so like the disturbing clown show play that like starts off where you're like, I'm watching a Shakespeare play and it slowly like unperceptibly starts to unravel until you're in that last moment with the women left alone on stage together with that feeling of like every door you open is a brick wall. I am so down to be in that play and explore that play. And I do yeah. think that there's something worthwhile in, in, in take, like, but I'm also like a big Jacobean fan as well. Like, I don't think that those plays get done enough. And there's a lot of 
worthwhile stuff underneath all the brutality and awfulness of those plays. Um, would this be like my first choice? Like would this ever hit like my top five Shakespeare plays I'm dying to do? No, but like, I, I, I do honestly think that there is something that could be teased out and, and um, you know, and, and, and in, in our like, absolutely relentless need to do like Midsummer Night's Dream for the 11,000th time. Like, I'm not going to go into my theories on that play, but like, I think that the, oh, it's such a good play. Let's just do it. People don't actually look at that play the way like we just looked at this play, mm -hmm. you know? And, and even having done one of these before with Henry Ford part one, there is a difference in how we talked about that play versus how we talked about this play. And we had to do a lot more work as creative artists during this reading because this is a challenging play and because there are things that need to be teased out and because we don't have this cultural memory. And so I'm always drawn to those types of projects um, mm -hmm. a little bit more than I was about being like, you want to play try your hand at how like yeah sure but like you know like really that's a that's a well that's a well drunk from well um <laughs> so like just as the opposite of sam's like i do think that there is that element to it that i do find interesting but um for a lack of better term i, I do think that i wouldn't want to be in a, like a straight ahead production like you have to queer the text somehow to make things pop out of it in, in ways that like, yeah, okay, it meant something back there, but now that we're translating it through history, we have to deal with it as it stands in 2021. Well, yeah, I, I feel like I should clarify. I love a good thought-provoking, disturbing play. Obviously, oh, yeah, no, I, did, I, did I was part of, I was like part of that Fuente. Like, I love that Jacobian's like my, my favorite. So that's just me, that's me personally clarifying. Yeah. But yeah, I know, Sam, I totally agree with you that like, if this is going to be done, it ha you have to lean into that and find that I love like this, like fun house, creepy, whatever I idea of it too. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I think, and I think honestly, when I, the production that I saw of it, like the first time I saw it, read it, whatever, it was just glossed over. It's like, oh, here we are. I, in the production that I saw, it was just glossed over. And I think that's why I had so much disdain for it for such a long time is because, and that's why it makes me so mad that like, uh, there are productions that take that part out because it's like it's like you're again you're missing the point of the story and so if you're going to do it lean in and really commit to it but yeah, commit yeah. to the bit that is this play <laughs> like um is he and colin <laughs> we're back sorry um i think one other thing that i just wanted to before we we kind of finished up here wanted to call attention to is we've, we've spoken about it for a second but um the disappearance of the clowns is in such a scene where we want that commentary is interesting because like we love like Festy saying something and you know or we it kind of gives meaning and this more feels like a tragedy and that like Lear like the fool isn't there at the end yeah. it, it gives me more vibes point. like that and I think it's really interesting because you don't have these comment these people who just have the will to comment on everything and are are able to do that um like as their job and so the fact that neither of them are in the last act at all is like 
I think especially because like speed is so huge in the beginning and it's just like speed every scene. And then it's like, we're getting serious, but we don't want to talk about the commentary yet. We're, <laughs> we'll figure that out in a later play. I'm not saying like Shakespeare as a person was like, this play shouldn't have commentary. But I feel like that skill maybe was just a, learned a little later. And like, that's part of why this feels so uncomfy is we don't have that commentary, like being kind of fun in the corner, even if it's like, you know, cause we still have like Lucio and the measure for measure in the end, like just yes, to, to exactly. break up the uncomfiness. There's just like, let's put him on stage again. You remember him. Um, and that's what I feel like. That's one thing that this is missing. Yes, the violence, it's all, that's all horrific. But the, the reason it can be glossed over in my opinion is they don't have those. Mm. There's nothing saying that. Like, I don't, I don't know. It just isn't set up that way. And that, to me is what's missing in this in this journey that Shakespeare is going on um, as we see later is that is the maturity that you see it's like yes it can be dark and we can comment on it without it just being like you know meh. and um, I think yeah I guess especially this time when we were reading it and like um, I was in this a few summers ago but just it just is missing exactly the kind of energy it had at the beginning, even though the whole time it was going to this, the mm -hmm. whole time it was going to this, it was going to these men doing these things, but it was going to these men doing these things with other people kind of being there being like, oh, or paralleling their journeys with something like, like true love of, for the dog, you know, versus what they think love is. And it's like, you kind of want that in this scene. You want like, yeah. <laughs> Lance and the dog to come on and like reunite they've been lost in the forest or something and yes. like it's like oh my dog's back like that would be a funny I feel like that would be a fun parallel that is that would kind of give you a moment of like whoo whoo and we just yeah. don't get the whoo we just get men are done now we're talking we're done talking but no one's gonna say anything about it which I don't know that really jumped out at me we don't, you just made me realize, thank you so much for bringing that up, Izzy. We don't have a moment to breathe before this play ends, right? We don't get to collectively exhale. And that maybe is part of why the ending feels so like, <gasps> because we just, it doesn't let up. Like we don't, we don't have a pressure valve, right? Wow. Um, Mitch, go ahead, please. Yeah. Um, two observations, like just about the play that are perhaps contradictory the first uh, observation is that like every act sort of seems like a different style to mm. me as we were reading this we got this like leaving first act then we've got this like i forget if it was two or three it was almost this like aaron sorkin-esque political <laughs> drama then we had like the nighttime you know with the music and things like that and now we're in a pastor like it they all feel like like different styles of play which is interesting yeah. that being said um it feels it doesn't feel like some of the like super mature comedies um because there's more of a unified plot here actually like those other ones 12th night etc have like robust subplots and mm -hmm. i don't think we have that here the the servants are like feel much more connected to the the through plot right <laughs> like even the story about crab is like it's pretty closely tied to this this through plot of, of what's happening um, with these two men, which is interesting. And perhaps as a result, just want to note, like Proteus feels like a very fully written character for, for such an early thing. Like just yeah. reading him, he takes you through 
you know, it's more Hamlet than in that he says everything he thinks. Um, yeah. In that, rather than like a, a small, you know, like rather than I, I don't know, uh, Orlando or something like that, right? Um, oh, silly dumb Orlando. <laughs> we love him, but he's so dumb. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to one whenever we get to as you like it. Um, yeah, I thank you all so much for this. I feel like we could continue to talk about the end of this play for like another four hours. Um, but I, I just wanted to thank you all so much for your time and for also just talking about some very uncomfortable, unpleasant things because, you know, I think... <laughs> there's a reason that I haven't directed a tragedy yet in terms of this tabling. Like I, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to go there. Um, you know, when I was on the last sort of acting that I did, I was in, we were doing a tour of three plays and it was Macbeth, Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. And it was just like, there was a reason that we all drank so much during that tour. And it was a bit, I mean, first of all, it was like jet lag because it was in Japan. But second of all, it was like we needed a comedy in there. Like we needed a breath. We needed a, a, a we needed more moments of levity. We needed more moments of like, oh my god, it's a dog. You know, like when you when you stay with, and I think that's why this is so difficult, right, Izzy? I really think you just unlock something for me. Is that the absence of the clowns? makes this feel much more like a tragedy like we don't have festy coming on saying hey ho the wind and the rain the rain it raineth every day you know we don't get we don't get that moment of and now we're back again you know we don't break from the world we don't get a breath um and i think that makes this this play to me feel much more like a like a tragedy like that something has died in this last scene something whether it's love whether it's seeing your version of something something has been destroyed in this last scene um and it's it's tricky so i thank you all very much for 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 going there <laughs> together 